Ephesians chapter 4, reading from verse 1 through to verse 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As was mentioned, I'll be looking at following from what Chris has already exhorted us to. And this message is somewhat thematic um, because, as Chris has mentioned, unity is written through virtually every book of the Bible. There are negative examples of disunity and division and there are also positive exhortations about unity. So the, the message I have won't be particularly like a detailed analysis of a verse, but rather we'll be going through through different passages together. To, to help us practically pursue unity, I'm, I'm just going to try and look at three things. One of them, the first thing is going to be a hindrance, hindrances to unity, what holds us back, what keeps us from experiencing and um, knowing unity in our churches. And then secondly, um, the, the last two things will be two helps, or two things we should be really considering if we are to experience unity in, in churches. Um, the other thing I'm going to mention by way of introduction is that I think what Chris has said is, is, is right. Um, unity really is primarily experienced, I think, in local churches. All the exhortations and epistles around unity are addressed to individual churches. Now, lots of people say we need unity across denominations, across belief systems, but the reality is if you can't get it in your local church, there is no way at all to pursue it more broadly than that and it's practically the people that you live with the people that you minister with the people that you serve with week by week it's these people that you need to have unity with and then the rest follows on from after that so um, with that said there's three things one hindrance and then two helps let let me just pray and then we'll get into it our father in heaven we thank you again for your word that was read to us we pray that you would help us we acknowledge that um, during the second session when we've already been filled with so much of your word we can be distracted with other things lord for this next moment we pray give us grace to pay attention 
uh, give us grace to understand and give us grace beyond this next little while to apply these things, to pursue these things, to be wary of some of these things uh, beyond this weekend. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so firstly, what prevents unity in churches? What, what do you think holds back churches from experiencing uh, unity amongst its, its body of believers? Why should we start with addressing problems we might have? Well, well you might imagine to yourself um, being in a situation when you're in a boat. It's filling up with water, so everyone grabs the buckets and starts emptying the boat. You can do that to your heart's content, get everyone to do it, but if you don't address the fact that there is a massive hole in the boat and it is leaking, it's, uh, that, that's a fool's errand. So the first thing we have to do is address problems we might have in pursuing unity. Now, some might argue that unity isn't experienced in churches because of doctrine. You may have heard the phrase, doctrine divides. Doctrine breaks up fellowship. Doctrine is, is, is like a wall between believers. We, we, we mustn't emphasise doctrine because really, who knows? Who knows what's right? You see, some people would argue if you jettison doctrine, if you jettison uh, core teachings, they they call them secondary teachings or even central teachings, you'll you'll get rid of all those divisive issues. You don't need to talk about things like the ordinances or how churches are meant to be uh, set up. You don't need to talk about these things. If you just jettison these things, we will achieve peace. Well, you know, the reality is you can achieve a sense of peace if you jettison doctrine, you can experience a sense of unity. There are entire denominations that have thrown out tertiary doctrines, secondary doctrines, primary doctrines, and they're united in their apostasy. They're united in their backslidden ways in their rebellion against God. You can read chapters of the Old Testament where the people of God, in name, are very much united uh, in their sin and in their rebellion. Today, we have... in higher denominations. Interestingly, um, what's common about these denominations is they often have the word united in their names, right? If you go to the UK, it's the United Reformed this, United Methodist, here it's the Uniting Church. They emphasise unity, but at what cost? They want to throw out doctrine. I would suggest that that's not a great way to go. But another reason people might say um, causes division is the fact that aren't we all just by nature, how God made us, just different. Some of us were born in this country, others were born in other cultures. Some of us uh, have white-collar jobs, some of us are students, some of us work in factories. You know, we have different tastes, different lives. There are singles, there are marriage, there are those who are widows, those who are older. To have all those people in the same room, you're just asking for trouble, are you not? So what do some churches do today to promote unity? They will say... If you are of a certain group, maybe ethnicity, they say, you should all gather together. They might have their services in English, but because you're from the same background, that's going to provide, promote unity. Or, in certain churches, if you are of a certain age, you will meet very early in the morning. You will have a hymn book, or you will have a prayer book, or you will have some sort of book with no, no projector, and you will have a united service. And then, 
two hours later, you will have another service that have all the, the loud little children crying, crawling over, and then in the evening, you will have another service for those who are hip and happening and um, probably have the beards that uh, Chris was talking about. Uh, <laughs> but you, you get the point. The point is, people say, churches are so diverse, you can't really have unity by having everyone together. You have to separate and segregate. Can you see a problem with that type of thinking? You know, it, it's true, many of those churches don't have uh, big debates about the songs, the length of sermons, the, the topics that they will cover because they are united. But th 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 there's a certain thing missing from that. Well, I want to suggest that the main obstacle to unity in churches is not doctrine. It's not personal preferences, which can be neither right nor wrong. The main obstacle to unity in churches, in the scriptures, is this. It's sin. Sin. It's our rebellion against God. It's our selfishness uh, directed towards ourselves and against each other. And if there was a book in the Bible that emphasizes the effects of sin in the New Testament church, which book would you go to? Well, you could turn to ba basically any book, but which book would you highlight? Corinthians. Corinthians. That's a great book. That's, you know, Corinthians going wildly. If we had time and you just, just take your mind through Corinthians. The first few chapters, not that Paul or uh, Peter or any of those set themselves up as celebrity preachers. Can you remember at the beginning of, of, of that, that book, they were all saying, I'm of John Piper. No, I'm of, of Tim Keller. I'm, I'm, of, I'm of MacArthur. That, 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 they're the opening chapters. And then there's sexual immorality in the middle of the book. That's causing divisions in the church. Middle of the book, yet again, they are suing one another. And then they're, they're, there's a big, you know, they're crawling over each other for the Lord's table and pushing each other aside later on. Time and time again, chapter after chapter, if you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, you will see a divided church. It happens to be the book that emphasizes unity the most. But Paul, does, Paul never says, throw out doctrine. Paul never says, throw out personalities. He says, every time, Deal with sin. Deal with sin. Sin is the cancer in every church that prevents us from experiencing or attaining greater unity. You know, in heaven, it's going to be interesting. Do you think there'll be a little bit of doctrine or a lot of doctrine? I think there's going to be a lot of doctrine. There's going to be a lot. It, it's, it's not going to be doctrine light in heaven. Interestingly enough, do you think we're all going to be clones in heaven where our personalities are no, they're, they're just neutralized? Now, I think God has made us each with our unique personalities. Sometimes we use those personalities for evil, but in heaven we won't be allowed to. We won't be able to. In heaven, we, I think we will have a sense of personality, but every personality will be used for God's glory. So heaven will be doctrinally rich and there'll be plenty of personalities but in heaven there will be no sin and that's the place where we will experience unity fully for what it is so I've got to say this if sin alienates us from God that's the message of the scriptures it will clearly alienate us from one another it will cause grievances it will cause hurt it will cause division so any genuine pursuit of unity in your church at smithfield at dremoyne at stanmore if you say we want unity in our church 
Any church, any family, any individual that wants unity has to be serious about dealing with sin at the individual level, the family level, at the corporate church level. Because you can have as many vision statements, as many beautiful websites as you want. It's really easy. You can see lots of people. You can even outsource that. Beautiful. You can download beautiful pictures, beautiful people, wonderful programs. But if you do not deal, if we don't deal, if I don't deal biblically with sin in my life, my family life, in my church life, there is no hope, no hope of unity in your church. You never walk away. You can't run if you've got a ball and chain attached to you. And that's what sin does. That's the first thing. The, the hindrance, the hindrance to unity in the church is sin and we need to be serious about dealing with it. And if you look at other churches out there, speak to enough people, they say, oh, we've got all these problems. And you say, how are you dealing with it? They want to deal with it with every other way except deal with sin. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's a necessary thing to do. Because something like the book of 1 Corinthians tells you, you have to deal with sin if you want unity. Now I'm going to turn to the passage now that we've been, um, which was read to us earlier, and we're going to look more closely at two helps. Two helps from Ephesians 4. If we put away sin, that is a fantastic start, that is a great start. But we need to do more than that. And the two things we're going to look at from Ephesians 4 is this. We're going to mature in doctrine. We're going to dig deep. We're going to wrestle with it. We're going to grapple with it. We're going to understand doctrine and truth. That's number one. And then secondly, we're going to do something with that truth. We're going to speak that truth in love. Okay. So we're going to firstly establish, find, learn, mature in doctrine. And then secondly, we're going to speak that doctrine or that truth in love cast your eyes with me on the first few verses of ephesians 4 1 to 6 there have been great things said in the first three chapters of ephesians about god's decrees god's sovereignty god's plans god's uniting people to himself and god's uniting people to one another jews and gentiles there's big unity themes in ephesians then we come to verse 1 of chapter 4 and just read the first uh, say six verses Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You know, you can be called and walk in a manner unworthy of your calling. And if we're honest, that's often how we are. But there's a way that we can walk in a worthy way. It says, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Why? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity is playing on Paul's mind when he speaks to this church in Ephesus. It's an important thing. You know, in verses 11 onwards, and Chris mentioned this in his talk earlier, he's given, let's look at this, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And what's that going to look like? For building up the body of Christ. 
to, well, to what end, Paul? Why, why should he do that? Building up the body of Christ sounds like a nice idea, but why? Until we all attain, until we all reach, until we all progress to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of Man, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is this unity of the faith? In one sense, all believers are united by virtue of the fact that they have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about those who call themselves Christians and come up with some crazy doctrine, some crazy experience of what it is to be a Christian. We're talking about all of those, not the goats, we're talking about sheep. Sheep who have genuine saving faith in Christ. In one sense, we are all united. We're all united to Christ through faith. But this unity of the faith... I think it's more than that. It's, it's more than just elementary 101 basic belief. Sure, that gets us all into heaven. That, that gets us into the kingdom. But as it's described here in verse 13 and 14, it seems like it's something that is a product. It's a result of, of a maturing and a developing phase. This is more than just entry-level faith. This is more than just the faith that the thief had on the cross. You know, that, that got him into the kingdom. And whatever this unity of the faith is, it seems that it goes hand in hand with growing in the knowledge and understanding of Christ until we become to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, how is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? You just believe in Jesus and then all of a sudden you click your fingers, tap your heels and then you become mature? I'm glad um, Joel brought up Whitney's book on spiritual disciplines because if, if you know anything about that book or anything, any book about discipline which I must say is a dirty word today. Any, these days, anyone talks about discipline, they think, oh, it's works, it's legalism, it's, it's, it's all this hard stuff, it's not grace. No, those books are framed in the context of grace. You work hard at your faith for the glory of Christ because God has saved us for his glory. He didn't, he didn't save us for an early retirement plan. He wants us to work he wants us to strive. He wants us to enter in by the narrow gate. Well, how is this going to happen? Well, most of you would be familiar with Hebrews 5 verse 14, which encourages believers not just to, as it were, stay with milk. Now, most people like milk, except if you're lactose intolerant, and there's, then you and all those around you don't like milk. But... But milk, generally speaking, is, is a good thing. It's, it's a nutritious thing. It's a simple thing, but it enables you to grow. We have a number of babies around here. We have a number of newborns, and it's fantastic to see them drinking milk and growing and developing. Sure, you, a 16-year-old can, can have milk as well, but you would expect them to eat other things as well because 
part of maturing and growing is that yes, you have the milk, yes, you appreciate it, but you need other things to grow. You need other things to develop and mature. I think one of the saddest things, one of the saddest things I see in churches today is that you can meet Christians, professing believers who've been raised in Christian homes, who have been spent maybe five years, 10 years, 20 years in churches, and they cannot explain the most basic things of the Christian faith. It's sad. It's terrible. Because the funny thing is, it's not because they're unable intellectually to understand these things. It's just the importance of doctrine has just been downplayed. Most people here, um, most people here, I mean, there are some people at high school. Okay, there are some people here in year 9, year 10, and that's great. But others have been to, to technical college or, or, or um, TAFEs and universities, training institutes, beyond school. Can you imagine what the church would look like if believers... I'm not just talking about pastors, I'm not talking about youth workers or gospel workers, I'm just talking about everyday Christians spent as much time, as much time in God's word than they did for their plumbing course or their catering course or their hospitality course. You know, they say, I've got an exam, I've got to study, I've got to read this book, these chapters, listen to these lectures. But then you say to them, well, we're gonna, we, we've got a Bible study. So, oh, sorry, can't. Because I'm already in the kingdom. It's tragic. We expect secondary and tertiary degrees and qualifications for, for, for people working in the streets, and, and rightly so. But the world we've, we've, we now live in says, oh, no, that's, if you want that, you've got to go to Bible college. Now, I can guarantee if you look at a Bible college curriculum 50 years ago to today, it's a very different beast. Many of you would be familiar with the shorter catechism, whether you get the Presbyterian version or a Baptist version. It's about 100 or so questions, asking a range of things with scripture verses um, about justification, adoption, what are the Ten Commandments, what's prayer, and they give very extensive answers. It's interesting that two or three hundred years ago when these were really in vogue in the churches, you know who knew them? You know who understood those catechisms? Six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds. And today you wouldn't find many seminary students being able to give an adequate answer to some of those things. Because we've grown and matured, haven't we, as a church? Or maybe we've just fooled ourselves. No, doctrine is important because unity of the faith gives us stability. Let's look at the the passage again. Why does it say we have to have a deep appreciation for doctrine in verse 14? Why? What's it say? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves. What do these waves look like? It looks like we'll be carried away by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. It is terribly naive 
to think that all you need to know is just John 3.16 and life is well. In a sense, that is true for entry into the kingdom. But if you want to serve well, to flourish in church life, if you want confidence and boldness in evangelism, in witness, if you want help with parenting in your marriages, in how to deal with your bosses, with your employees, with the team you work with, with the neighbours, with everyone you meet, if you don't want to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, then you need to counteract that with deep doctrine, with solid doctrine. You know, I have a friend who is a pastor of a good evangelical church. He's a lovely guy, preaches the gospel, he's passionate about reaching the lost, he wants to see every person saved that he meets. And he's really keen on sharing the gospel with people. The interesting thing though is, He's so passionate about reaching the lost. He just goes, as long as they're saved, that's okay. What they believe after that, it really doesn't matter because they're already in the kingdom. So you know what his church looks like? His church is very diverse. I'm not just talking about ages. I'm not just talking about ethnicities. I'm not talking about working class. I'm talking about they are very diverse on a range of issues, such as, Did God make the world? How did he make the world? Is it this way or that way? Roles for men and women. Who should be able to preach and teach? What role should people have? This church has a a range of views, diverse range of views of whether God speaks today through prophets and charismatic gifts and healings. This church is also very... Interesting now that because it is such a diverse church, such a a welcoming church, that they have all sorts of people in in this church, he's a strong evangelical guy, that have all sorts of views on what marriage should look like. They're all over the place. And he rarely challenges them. He rarely asks them, is that what's biblical? Why doesn't he ask those questions? Well, he says, and it it sounds very sophisticated, it sounds very mature, they're not gospel issues. They're not gospel issues, so we don't need to talk about them. We just need to be united in the gospel and everything else doesn't matter. Well, you tell me, how united do you think that church is going to be? How united do you think that church is going to be when they, some of them want say, a woman preaching. Or a same-sex couple come to the church and say, hey, can you bless this ceremony or marry us or whatever it's going to look like in five years? How united do you think that church really is? Sure, united in the gospel. So it seems. All these doctrines God has given to us on ecclesiology, on sacraments, on marriage, on church leadership, governance, discipline, they're like fences, they're like layers that go round and round and round the gospel. Yes, that's precious, and that's what we need to understand to be in the kingdom. But if you want unity in your churches, 
Yeah, that, that gospel has to be there. That's what anchors you. But you need all these other layers if you're going to do church, do life, do family well together. As a church, have you ever lost people because of those issues? Have people come, they've stayed a few weeks, maybe a few months, and then they realise, whoa, you guys are a bit fundy, aren't you? You actually believe that about the Bible? You believe that? None of my other Christian friends believe that. I dare say, I know we all minister and labour in small churches. If you lose people because of your doctrine, biblical doctrine, grounded doctrine, historic doctrine that has been proven, stood the test of time, it's no real loss. No real loss. Because your other option is, you just say, none of these doctrines matter. And we'll just take anyone. Just come. Come. That's why you will find some pastors and some churches just all contorted in a knot because they've done so many backflips on so many issues to try to grow the church. Now, if the issue is clear in the scriptures, we need to hold fast may not be fun, may not be pleasant nor enjoyable to lose people over these things. But by God's grace, you as a church will be far more united. Far more united. came across this quote recently which really impressed me. It's from J.C. Ryle a few hundred years ago, good Anglican friend. He said, Never let us be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace. Never sacrifice any portion of truth on the altar of peace. Today people want peace, they want unity, they want all of these things, but it is not biblical peace and it is not biblical unity. So we've got to be careful. We need to understand doctrine. If you want unity, you want peace, the thing we must do is go deeper and deeper and deeper into doctrine. Doctrine about the person of God. Can you believe today people are arguing about the Trinity? And not from outside the evangelical church, from within the evangelical church. The work of Christ. The mechanics of salvation. The doctrine of the church. The purpose of the church, membership, leadership, what worship should look like, what evangelism should look like. All of these things need to be addressed if you want to be united as a church. These, sure, compared to the, the, the core gospel may be secondary in some senses. But if there is biblical clarity about these issues, then it is essential and it is incumbent on us. It's important for us to, to grasp these things to embrace these things. You know, the more you dig, the more you'll find treasure. That's God's word. It's just rich. We see, begin to appreciate God's plan for us, and we, we start to conform our lives to it. We start growing together as churches. But you know what it also does? If there are people amongst you who don't truly love God's word, they'll start getting bored. 
They'll start saying, oh, I'm not sure about this. God's doctrine, God's, in God's word, will either build you up or it will drive people away. We either learn and grow or people leave. So can I encourage you, if you are not interested in doctrine, if you can't be bothered, if you are just too busy with other things, please don't expect unity. Don't expect harmony and don't expect to grow. You can be that kid that sits there with milk, powdered milk, white milk, whatever you want. And sure, you might get to it, you might enter the kingdom in 20, 30 or 50 years time, but at the end of the day you will be accountable for what you have been exposed to and what you have failed to implement. We need to dig, we need to study. So if you've got Bible study groups, you've got prayer meetings, you have prayer triplets, you have whatever it is in your church, then you prioritise that. You prioritise that like you would if you were doing your HSC or if you had an exam or if you had a job interview. You know, some people here have work meetings every Monday morning at 9 o'clock. Never be late for that. Why? Because you might get the sack, get thrown out. Might never see promotion. But surely... The glory of God and learning more about him is far more of an incentive than just losing your job. You can stay up. I know people stay up to all hours partying, doing, having dinner parties, going to cafes, going to frozen yogurt stores in Newtown. That's all great. Talk about God's word. And here's a challenge for all of us, myself included. Straight after the service at your church, what do you talk about? How's your week? What's been going on? It's a shame what's happening in federal politics. It is... Can I, can I say, the biggest killer of churches growing in doctrine is straight after the service, when people want to know what happened in the soccer or the rugby or whatever else happened on the weekend. You've just been fed God's word and we're too ashamed or too embarrassed to talk about it. A healthy, united, mature church, the first thing you should be talking about after the service is what that message has meant to you, how it's challenged you. If you've got questions, ask. But please don't come from the high place, as it were, not you know the idolatrous high place, a high place in God's word, and then all of a sudden bring it down to the mundaneness of your week. Talk about God's word, the preciousness of it. Because if you can't talk about it with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have no hope of talking about it in the world with your friends. You know, the interesting thing is we can only have this camp, this combined camp, amongst three churches. Why? Because I know what Chris and Joel believe on important doctrines. I understand as well that we don't see eye to eye on several other things, important doctrines, sure. But the fact is I know what they believe, they know what I believe. We can have healthy debates about these things. But we can have, what do you call it? A united camp because of doctrine. I know that they're not going to come up here and say something crazy or recommend some crazy book because we have similar approaches to God's word and to doctrine. And we're all willing to change in the sense that if one of us shows one another, hey, this is, this is how it ought to be, 
you've always got to be willing to change your views if someone comes to you with scripture biblical doctrine does not divide it unites Hebrews 5 tells us, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians. So many passages show us that if we have good doctrine, we will be united. But I want to move on to this third and final point, and that's this. What do we do with this doctrine? Wow, we've come up, I don't know, you've become a superlapsarian, an infralapsarian, whatever it is you've come up with. What, what are you going to do with it? You go find the biggest baseball bat and start beating people in your church. You've just discovered this latest and greatest thing. And if you don't believe it, you're a heretic and you should be, you know, there's a pile of sticks out the back. Or if you don't like that, there are stones over there. That No. What we see in verse 15 of Ephesians 4 is this. Rather than being tossed to and fro, what do we do? We speak the truth. Not with harshness. Not with pride not with arrogance, not with conceit, not in a condescending way, we speak the truth in love. We're all familiar with 1 Corinthians 13 and you can look at all those descriptors of love and just import all of that into this verse. I'm just going to take one of them right now. We speak the truth with patience. You found great doctrines, great truths about God, about church, about Christian living. We need to be patient. We need to understand that some of us dig and learn, dig for treasure and we learn faster than others. But you know, when we come to an appreciation of God's truth, in a sense, yeah, you've been diligent and God has blessed that, but it is ultimately a work of grace. It's not because you're smarter not because necessarily you're more diligent but any understanding of truth is a gift of God's grace so when we have that what we're sharing is a grace gift to share it with others and we pray that our our brothers and sisters in the church will also experience God's grace in that area you know sometimes and I'm I'm guilty of this in my desire, as, as particularly as a younger man, to share God's truth, I've gone around with so much zeal and so much fire, but of, of no practical use. People go, he's a madman. He's crazy. He's lost it. I, I can't understand that. And it, We need to exercise patience if we want to see people grow and grapple with truth. Can't use it like a baseball bat, a cricket bat, or a battering ram. You know, if you use God's truth, take God's election, you know, some of the solars, the five points. If, if we take God's truth, and, and, you know, these are passionate to me, uh, to the other pastors here and many people here, but some people here may not be on, or fully on board with some of those things. But if I come to you and say, you must believe, you must believe, you must believe, if you don't believe these things, you're out of here, I'm not going to talk to you, all those things. You know what? People will have one of two things. People can either walk away Or people go, yeah, you know what, I believe it. They tick the box, yep, I believe that. And what you have is something close to unity, but it's a second-class product. It's called uniformity or conformity. Where people go, yeah, actually, I'll mention this now. Someone said to me earlier, hey, Mike, how come you're wearing this blue shirt rather than the check shirt that uh, Chris and Joel are wearing? And I said, because we're after unity, not uniformity. 
I'm going to be united with these guys, irrespective of the clothing I wear. But sometimes that's what we look for, don't we? We look for an external appearance that, oh, we're all on the same page. But unless people have actually studied God's word, prayed over it, internalised it for themselves, all you get is just a shell. And that's called uniformity. And that's not what the Bible's talking about. We want diversity in the church, right diversity, but we want unity in doctrine. And so you have to be patient with one another. And I say this to pastors, Bible study leaders, people who, you know, maybe it was easy for us to come to these things, but I've been pleased to say that I've watched people for years and years and years ago, oh, I don't think they're ever going to get this. And then all of a sudden you have this conversation and they say, you know what, this is how I'm going to do my life. And it's something that you spoke about years and years ago and it's a wonderful thing because they've internalised it. They said, no, this is how I want to live. But you haven't had to beat them over their head with it. That's a warning for those of us who are full of zeal. Not much grace. We speak the truth with patience. Secondly here, sometimes though we need to speak truth that challenges. Challenges. It provokes. Because churches, your church, my church, we're all made up of people that are perhaps saved but are yet imperfect and need to grow and still be challenged. We need to be conformed to Christ. Have you guys all seen mammals? I'm not talking about the small furry things, not, not the mammals like reptiles and amphibians. Mammals as in middle-aged men in lycra, the guys on bikes going around, M7, I don't know where they go, mammals. They often ride in groups, don't they? Why do they do that? To pace each other. If, if you ride by yourself, you can go at a certain pace, but if you ride with others, you pace each other. And being part of churches is like being in one of those mammal bike groups. We pace each other. Sometimes we have to wait to, to let others catch up, but we don't leave people behind. We need to speak truth that challenges one another from time to time. So here's the thing. Do you have people in your churches that are somewhat committed, but not fully committed. They always seem to find things, reasons not to be at things. How comfortable are you challenging them, saying, would you like to come to this, this men's meeting, this women's meeting, whatever it is, would you like to help with this outreach? Or maybe it's something as simple as, you know, we need someone to help up, help wash up after morning tea. Are there some people in your church you dare not ask? And so you keep asking the same people time and time again? We need to pace each other. We need to challenge one another. A united church is when everyone does the dishes. It's not when a, a select few. This has real practical bearings on the life of the church. Because you know what? If the same people wash up and others don't, what happens then? There are some people who are lazy. And then those who wash up all the time say, I can't believe I'm washing up again. And there's bitterness and there's anger and there's stress. Whether it's washing up, whether it's the cleaning roster, whatever it is, if you're part of a church, get involved. Get involved. Speaking the truth means we will challenge each other, we will pace each other. This is what I call formative discipline in the life of the church. If you're not going to a Bible study group or regularly to your women's or men's ministry, why aren't you? Okay, there may be legitimate reasons. There may be, a, but another recreational activity, as far as I'm concerned, isn't. 
Find another night. Find another club to do that. Prioritise God's word and the study of it. But sometimes we need to speak an even stronger word. So we speak the truth with patience. We speak the truth that challenges. But sometimes we speak the truth that rebukes. That rebukes. We go, oh, it's too hard. Many of us are familiar with Proverbs 26, which says that open rebuke is better than hidden love. Because, you know, we're such loving churches, we would never say to the other person, that's wrong. Well, you know what? I've got little kids, and every time they're playing by the side of the road, my love doesn't say, I love them so much they can do what they want when a semi-trailer is coming down the road. Sometimes I shout and say, stop. Sometimes I have to grab them by the arm to stop. Either way, we're not just playing with semi-trailers, we are playing with people's souls. So if there are people in your churches that are struggling with sin, as we all do from time to time, then we need to be prepared to say in a gentle but perhaps firm way, that is not good for your soul. Can we pray about that? It's another topic altogether. But we need to be churches that invite rebuke. So, you know, have you ever done this? Have you gone to people in your church, maybe your brothers or sisters in Christ, and say, can you see things in my life that are concerning you about my Christian witness and my Christian walk? Could you say that? And you know what people say in, because we live in polite circles. Oh, there's nothing. Yeah, you're doing fine. Yeah, go for it. But then to other people, like, oh, I can't believe such and such. How hypocritical are we? If you're a part of a united church, you will invite rebuke. And you know what? You won't stop. You invite people. You say, kind of like Jacob wrestling with God. He says, I will not let you go until you tell me something that needs to change in my life. Are you prepared to do that? If you are, then you might experience more unity in the life of your church. Do I serve enough? Am I blessing with my lips or am I cursing with my tongue? But you know, this is the final sub-point. Most of the time when we speak to one another, we simply need to encourage. We need to encourage. You know, unity in the life of the church comes with putting away sin, doctrine, speaking truth patiently, challenging, rebuking. But it just comes in part by sharing in each other's joys and each other's sorrows. We celebrate with others in church. Family milestones. We learn things. Surgeries have gone well. People getting married. People having babies. People getting new jobs. People serving and leading the church well. We celebrate with one another. And then we also go into the depths of despair with people when they're going through difficult times. When things in the family are distressing, are dark, maybe the immediate family, maybe extended family. Things in the workplace are awful. Finances are tight. 
relationships are all messed up. That's the time when we come and share, not our opinions, but God's word with one another. When we share with what we've learned from God's word, our quiet times, our devotions. Again, how comfortable are we sharing that with one another? For those of us on social media, we're very quick to share the latest article, or the latest meme, but we're so slow to share what God's taught us in God's Word. Well, maybe that's because we're not spending time in God's Word. Well, we've got to work out what the problem is, don't we, and address it. Let me wrap up. In summary, if we want unity in our churches, and we were reminded in John 17, this is a precious thing to our Lord Jesus. He's praying for it, that we would be united. And we're not talking about Mickey Mouse unity out there and change the name to Smithfield Uniting Church or Dremoyne or Stanmore Uniting Church. That's what we're not talking about branding. We're going to be committed to the following. Firstly, we're going to deal with sin in our individual lives, family lives, corporate lives. You, you can't step forward with that ball and chain on your leg. That's a daily thing. It's a regular thing. Something we always have to do. Dealing biblically with sin. I'm not talking about, you know, there's no guarantee we won't sin, but when people do sin, we need to deal with it biblically. Secondly, are we prepared to dig and invest and build foundations that are rooted and grounded in God's Word? Are you going to Bible study? Are you reading it personally? going to men's, women's groups, whatever you have, are you reading good books? Are we pursuing deep doctrine? Because that is what brings unity of the faith. And then thirdly, once we have found these things, once we have discovered them, are we prepared to share them, to speak the truth in love with one another? Summary, are we prepared to share God's truth in an appropriate way? Because taken together, these three things work to build unity in the life of the church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that as we look into the mirror of your word, there are many ways we fall short. There are many times we have overshot the mark. But Father, we pray for grace to experience greater unity in the lives of our families, our churches, and even between churches by putting away sin, by better understanding deep doctrines, and by speaking your truth in love. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.